It's Good Friday and the One Football European Tour podcast is back. I'm Dan Burke and joining me to discuss a memorable week in the Champions League, Europa League and Conference League is Joel Sanderson-Murray. Hello. And Daniel Cadena-Jordan. Hello, hello. So were you both having a, a good, good Friday so far? Yeah, yeah. Um, having bad coffee, but that's about the, the low point of my day, so I can't really complain, can I? Why is it bad coffee? Because I ran out of coffee, so I just had like the very, very end of the little bag that I usually have, oh, okay. and now it's just like watery brown water, basically. Can't be having that, mate. <laughs> I know. You've got some lovely coffee shops around your end as well. Yeah, but it's Good Friday. Everything is closed, so... Oh, true, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't think about yeah, that. that's why it sucks today yeah. <laughs> it's a bad Friday <laughs> bad Friday no damn it <laughs> um, I feel a bit left out Joel because I'm the only one on this podcast with, with only one surname I know he's getting left out yeah I don't call you a nerd but you know maybe you're a nerd yeah maybe I'm a wool who knows what what, what, what. <laughs> Anyway, we've got loads to talk about today, so let's uh, let's get stuck into it. And we'll begin this week with our first of two stops in Madrid with that crazy game between Real Madrid and Chelsea at the Bernabeu on Tuesday night. Uh, Joel, were you surprised by the fight Chelsea put up here after that first leg? They seemed a bit dead and buried after the first leg, but really had a good go at it, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, Thomas Tuchel pretty much threw it in post-match after the first leg, didn't he? He said yeah. there's no chance. The tie was dead and... Um, I mean, I'm not sure it was intended as mind games at the time because I think he was just reacting emotionally post-match. But um, it's kind of like when you make texture and say, you know, fancy a pint, you go, oh, nah, and then within 10 minutes, you're out for a pint. Um, <laughs> that, that happens. Like, maybe, maybe he was trying to play mind games after all. And, um, and you know, it, it, it kind of worked. I don't know whether that was, you know, the, what happened was down to Real Madrid maybe letting their guard down a little bit because of what happened in the first leg and, and Tuchel's comments but Chelsea gave it a re- really good go with, with, the, with the best team over over 90 minutes well the first 90 minutes you'll say I, I don't think they'll great next time but um, mm. and they, they were alright and, and you know what possibly maybe deserved to go through and maybe it was a, a little harsh and it didn't happen in the end but no I was a little surprised I was also surprised by the team because I didn't expect to see Loftus-Cheek in there ahead of Jorginho but um Jorginho has been a bit out of form in, in recent months, so maybe that's maybe that's why. But um, no, they 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 were they were brilliant for a lot of Chelsea. Really, really a lot of fights, and, and Mason Mount especially was incredible and yeah. and, and goal really well. And for for you know the first let's say 70, 80 minutes, he was phenomenal, probably the best player in the pitch. Yeah, Timo Werner started as well was a big surprise getting in. When he got on the score sheet, I thought the stars have really aligned for Chelsea tonight, but uh, it didn't quite work out for them in the end. Do you think they will they will look back on it with a bit of regret, Danny, or did they did they give as good as they got and, and do all they could really? Well, I think they had a really good second leg, but the problem was maybe the first uh, the, the game at home must have felt like a wasted opportunity. You know, had they defended mm. that one ball a bit better, had they scored another goal, it'd be a very different story right now, wouldn't it be? Uh, so I think it's just boiling down to the margin uh, that uh, that yeah, I think one or two players are probably wondering, you know, what could have been, what should have been, and what we could have achieved had we you know been a bit more focused on one or two uh, specific plays. But I mean, all in all, you're still playing Real Madrid, so it's not that big of a shocker to come out. I mean. Either of those teams, had you said before the game or before the series, they'll be in semifinals. You wouldn't be shocked. Like both mm. have kind of the merits to be there, but uh, but yeah, I think it's it's a bit tougher to swallow when you're so close yet so far, isn't it? Indeed, yeah. It's that Lukaku header in the in the first leg that was perhaps yeah. the uh, the big turning point. But yeah, as yeah, yeah, totally. as, Bev- as Beverly Knight once said, "Coulda, woulda, shoulda." So you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on that VAR decision to allow uh, disallow Marcus Alonso's goal in the, in the second leg, Joel? And, and did it matter in the grand scheme of things that it was disallowed? Do you think? I think the decision was correct. I mean, oh do you? 
Yeah, it goes, it goes by the rules nowadays, don't I? I mean, I'm, I'm not mm. necessarily sure it, that they should be the rules, but they are the rules. And, um, you know, he's he's obviously taking a bit of advantage of the ball looking like it hit his hand or VAR have determined that it has hit his hand. Maybe, you know, that's up for debate. I, I think it does. I think it looks like it does hit his hand and, and he's obviously managed to control that and set himself up for the goal. So the decision was correct. I mean, in terms of the context of, you know, the moment of the game it comes in... Um, that could have changed everything because I felt when that went in and, and then, you know, it was a couple of minutes that we sort of had the, well, maybe, maybe less longer than that, but um, we sort of accepted that Chelsea were 3-0 up. It did feel at that stage Chelsea would go on to win that game and probably go and get a four or five fouls before before it was ruled out. And I felt like Real Madrid had completely been decimated. But, um, you know, so possibly it had a you know a big say in, in the state of the game. But, you know, Chelsea do go and score a third goal after that with... Yeah. It's time remain for Real to, to equalise and, and still go and do it. So, you know, maybe it didn't have as much to say as you know, but I, I think that the right decision was, was determined in, in, the, in the end, the grand scheme of things. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, it was Luka Modric who it took matters into his own hands, assisting Rodrigo for the, the goal that was the real turning point with that incredible pass. Uh, I've, I've seen some mixed reviews on this pass, Danny. I've seen some people saying it's the greatest thing ever, hang it in the Louvre, a work of art, all that kind of thing. And some people going, oh, this happens every week in Argentina. Uh, what was uh, what was your, your impression on that? I mean, it's a fantastic pass. Kudos to those people who see that many good assists that I know, often. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it, it doesn't take away the fact that it was a brilliant assist. Uh, I mean, Madrid is just this season, like considerably above the rest of the midfield of Real Madrid quality-wise, I reckon. I think it's just another stroke in the genius he's had uh, throughout the 2021-2022 season. Um, and yeah, I think not only because of what it looked like and what it felt like, obviously, uh, but also what it meant in the game. It was sort of like a breaking point for the rest of the match. And that's when you kind of started seeing Chelsea like realize, okay, yeah, we're kind of screwed now, aren't we? These guys are, are in their game. If they want to be in the game, they're just letting us play here and there. But uh, I don't know. I, I really can't find a single thing to lament over that pass or Modric <laughs> season in general. So, I mean, if you've seen better than that, good for you. If you haven't, well, I mean, it's not a bad place to start. This is this. this. <laughs> yeah. But uh, best pass ever for you, Joel? I mean, it's it sort of gave me levels of intimacy that I've not felt in a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That's a, that's a window into your private life no one really needed, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe could that be a for it. I mean, I'm not sure. I think if you want to talk about that, it's sort of Kaka in the uh, 2005 Champions League final. But for anyone sort of listening to this, um, Sid Lowe of The Guardian met, um, posted about it the day after and then I sort of asked for next le- um, sort of passes that could be on the same level as that. Mm. And then you just get loads of replies of videos and suggestions. And that, I mean, that's worth it time if you got a 10 minute spare just to just to sort of uh, drool over the lovely assists we've had in this game yeah yeah Cancelo did one against Everton this season that was really good but I thought uh, Modric's was probably slightly better than that but uh, yeah the uh the debate will rage on long into the night on that one, I guess. Uh, Ancelotti made some some pretty bold calls in the second half of this game, taking off Tony Crows and Casemiro. Both of them had faces like thunder when they were coming off, and you, you thought, has Ancelotti really lost the plot here? But, you know, it, it worked out at the end. Do you think this was a case of him really flexing his pedigree at this level, Joel? Well, yeah, Ancelotti doesn't tend to turn to his subs or too regularly, to be honest with you. Well, mm. in terms of trying to change the game anyway. Um you know he's he's big on naming his team three hours before he needs to, and um, and not making too many subs. But um, he he certainly he looks to have got that right because Camavinga comes on and then you know has a few shaky first minutes to get settled into the game. But I thought he was brilliant once he had settled and um, mm. and made a real impact. And I, I think 
what what those subs sort of suggest, and, and also the inclusion of uh, Valderdi from the, from the start, is sort of suggesting Real Madrid's next level midfield are starting to prove themselves now because they've stuck with that three of Casemiro, Tony Cross, and uh, Modric for for a long time now, and, and obviously it has worked. All the Champions Leagues they've won, and La Liga's they've won, but the question for for a little while has been, well, where's that next level, and who's who's going to come in next, and then. Um, you know, the amount of midfielders they've seen off in that time has, has been testament to their abilities. But now you're looking at Eduardo Camavinga and Valverde and, and you're seeing that those two especially can come in and um, and take the mantle, should we say. And I think that's what we've seen over these two legs. I thought Valverde's been the best player on the pitch, and especially Stamford Bridge. And, and, you know, he's second to Mount in, in, a, in the second leg. And I think Camavinga now has obviously got high potential but needs to get a bit more experience but I think he's proved himself in, in a quarter final that he can do it and belongs at this level as well Yep the next generation are here uh, What do you think Danny can Real Madrid get past City and, and win the, the 14th Champions League in their history or are they sort of riding their luck a little bit too much to get to this point I mean it's not the first time you would say Madrid have have you know uh, used their luck at their advantage kind of this whole my Madrid mystique in the Champions League is something like, you know, it's not the first time to be discussed. Mm. Um, City do seem to be the favorite in this uh, fixture, but you can never rule out Madrid, can you? Like I've learned it the hard way and um, I think we all have learned it the hard way. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a very 50-50 kind of coin toss situation right now, I reckon. Yeah. They could make it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they just like crash and burn uh, because, you know, they were played their hand or dealt whatever it is they dealt. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very much up in the air, I think. <laughs> yeah, our colleague Alejandro texted me on Wednesday night and just said, we meet again. <laughs> <laughs> So he's, How he's, ominous is that? Yeah, he's got into my head already. It's a good job I'm not playing, really, because I've bottled it already. <laughs> uh, there was another, uh, well, big shock on, on Tuesday night. The shock of the week, maybe the shock of the century, took place in Munich when a uh, late goal from Villarreal's Samuel Chukwueze dumped Bayern Munich out. Was this the shock of the century, though, Joel, or was that actually perhaps not that surprising, really, especially after, after the first leg? No, it certainly was surprising. I mean... Watching the first leg, I thought you know Villarreal missed some really golden chances to make that two and and three nil, and you know I thought a lot of people had the same thoughts afterwards. Is oh they're going to pay fat in Munich, aren't they? Because you could see Bayern dominating and creating a lot of chances, and I, I fully expected Bayern Munich to to get the two goals and possibly even you know dumped them out by fashion. To be honest with you. Mm. Um, it shows what I know about football to to the extent where I was hovering over. Um, booking the trains in Munich after the first leg was in. <laughs> um, frankly, didn't do that, but I know a lot of people who did. So it's a lovely that. city, though, to be fair, so, you know. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go to South Coast of Spain instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, it, I mean, it was surprising, but um, I think it's, I mean, I'm going to come on to buy in a second, but I think for Villarreal, they played an absolute blind over both legs. I mean, as, and, you know, sort of two different plans to attack the, both games. I mean, the first leg, I, I didn't let Bayern have a sniff. They, you know, they pressed to harry them and when they needed to and, and create a lot of chances, like I said. And the second leg, they just sort of, sort of sit tight and, and waited for the gaps to appear. And I mean, the goal he scores was just brilliant. I mean, Danny Pereira, is a quality footballer, but you know he turns as slow as the the, the Mercy Ferry. You know, what I mean? <laughs> a reference a lot of people listen to this might not get, but um, that is slow. But in the way he sort of turns his way out of three or four buying players, press them, and then picks that pass to Gerard Moreno, and then the rest is from there is is, is beautiful. And you know, we sort of you look at the textbook and um, counter attacking goal that was it. And and Villarreal, I think, go for all over the over the two games to deserve to go through and. 
and and Unai Emery has played an absolute air blinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was brave of Pereira to play that pass for the goal because he'd, he'd done that for the uh, the Bayern goal, hadn't he? And been caught in possession, so it was uh, it was good to see them sticking to the principles there. But as for Bayern, Danny, what's going wrong there? This this well, I say this season. I mean, the the top of the Bundesliga, aren't they? I know that's uh, that's not the one they want really. But what, what's going on? Is Julian Nagelsmann out of his depth? Are there, are there too many players coming to the end of the contracts, the the careers? It just seems a little bit like they haven't really clicked this season, have they? Uh, no, there's something they're definitely missing, especially compared to um, the flick years, let's call it that. Mm. Um, one side, I do think Nagelman was a bit like outwitted by Emery also. You know, Emery's been here before, arguably usually the Europa League, um, but he's been in situations where Nagelsmann's never been in. I think that's also a huge factor of the whole um, equation. But um, I think, yeah, the club also did commit the sin, let's call it that, of, you know, underestimating Villarreal considerably. Like, the approach of the whole game was similar to after Salzburg, after they drew in Austria, was like, oh, yeah, we'll just, you know, rampage them 7-0 again. This is the Bayern way. Allianz uh, Arena, we're unbeatable over there. Um, I think that mentality kind of sunk in too deep into many heads, uh, both on the pitch, off the pitch, in the stands. And, yeah, I think the extra sporting factors call it you know the negotiations where the contracts are going uh where what's you know going to be of Neuer, Müller, Lewandowski, Gnabry four big names um did have a bit of the influence as well of how committed the players must have been to this uh fixture but then again uh I don't know you bring Nagelsmann in for five years you real that's what his contract is running for you pay 30 million or 20 million euros for him uh arguably you knew we were going to have like a generational transition at one point so he's here for that Seeing him go out this way against Villarreal is more, I think, negligence and, you know, just being a bit stubborn about who you really are and the sort of player you have more than uh, a demerit to Villarreal. They did a fantastic job. Fire was simply just cut off with their pants down, basically. Yeah. And uh, I think that describes the story more than anything. <laughs> there's some bit. There's been some talk in the in the news this week about. Uh, I think it was Karl Heinz Rummenigge did an interview with with Kicker where he was saying there's a bit of a rest at the club. There's been some rumours about players not buying into Nagelsmann's training methods. Do you believe any of that? Do you think it's maybe a case of you know getting rid of some of the old guard and, and getting a new generation of players in and moving forward with a with a new coach and a new philosophy? I mean, it sounds silly to, to bring this up as a point, but keep in mind that much of the old guard is older than Nagelsmann himself. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there has to be something there that uh, there's probably like a culture shock because he's also like a very polarizing figure in Nagelsmann. Like even the way he dresses pisses people off sometimes. Like <laughs> it's, that's, it's that kind of guy. Like he's very brass, very himself. And I can see that being a factor for sure. But I don't know. It speaks poorly of the players if that is the reason why they're not clicking. That the fact that his personality doesn't work. I mean, you're a 30-something-year-old guy keep in mind or do whatever you want with your life or whatever the fact that you're a professional player one of the best in the world but that should not be an issue the fact of the coach being a lot more outspoken very you know kooky even uh that shouldn't affect you as a professional footballer being paid millions a year and this really shouldn't be on the table to even discuss but it seems to be the case uh the fact that he's planning long term i also imagine that has nothing to do with the fact that you know Müller, the neuers the Lewandowski's. uh they might not be that much of a priority in 2024 or 2025 anymore. So I don't know. I think Nagelsmann's head is maybe in the right place, thinking long-term instead of short-term. His first season in a big club after all as well. So I don't know. Uh, it's it's kind of you know shitty to blame it on 
personal differences of uh, personal philosophies between players and coach, but it seems to be a factor and it. it does suck that that's one of the reasons why this might not be clicking. Yeah, I'm just imagining the, the bigger boys at Bayern flushing his head down the toilet at lunchtime, stealing his <laughs> lunch money and all that thing. <laughs> Poor little Julian. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think this might mean for Re- Robert Lewandowski, Joel, and his future? Do you think he might think now, well, maybe my chances of winning the Champions League are going to better elsewhere? Maybe my chances of, of winning the Ballon d'Or are better elsewhere? Possibly. I'm, I'm not too sure with Lewandowski if, if they are going to be the main reasons why he is looking to leave Bayern. I mean, he has he has won everything that he needs to win at Bayern Munich, you know, aside from obviously an individual prize in the Ballon d'Or. And, and maybe his time to win that is either going to be the next one or it's never going to happen. Possibly all, all that, that chance is gone already. I'm not too sure about that. But um, I, I just think he, you know, he's been there since 2014, um, scored some goals, let's say. And then... <laughs> He's, he's, he's done it all. I just, I just wonder whether he just, you know, is, is fancying trying something new before he, he retires and then, you know, trying out, you know, fancying playing in a new country or, you know, with a new style of play, let's say, and, and, and seeing how it goes from there. And I'm, I'm not too sure whether it's going to be about, oh, he's, he's never going to win the Champions League again with Bayern Munich because, you know, Bayern Munich again next next season, no matter what happens, you know, you would fully expect them to get to the, to the semi finals at least, wouldn't you? It's, it's always a surprise when Bayern Munich don't get that far. Mm. So it's they've always got a chance to win, and I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be about that. When it comes to Lewandowski's um, future, I just, I just think he, you know he's possibly trying trying to find something new, and I'm not necessarily sure that this result is going to change it, good or bad. To be honest with you, yeah, we mentioned uh, Unai Emery there, Danny. It's, uh, it was a very good evening for him, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> do you think he's uh, he's truly vindicated himself uh, since his time? Uh, you know the the criticism that he received at Arsenal that what he's done with Villarreal, or does their league position, the seventh in the Liga, does that suggest that? Maybe their cup form is a bit of a red herring and, and there's still a lot of uh, work to be done there. Well, he's always been a really good coach for uh, cup tournaments, kind of. like He's mm. been great at Europa League. He's done great at basically every domestic cup he's ever you know coached at. Um, the thing with them, with Villarreal specifically, is that they probably don't have the seat, the depth to like you know commit to all the fronts in one same season. Um, they did rotate, for instance, all 11 players. Literally every single player that played the first leg against Bayern rested the game. Uh, the Liga game between the second leg with Bayern, um, just before that one, sorry. Uh, so it kind of gives you an idea of what he actually has to work with. Uh, and, I mean, he did the job. He got Bayern out of the of the way, and he's now in semifinals. He's turned Villarreal not only into this really good Europa League side, but he brought them back to sort of like the stellar stage uh, in the Champions League. So, I don't know. Kudos to him. Kudos to his good evening. And, uh, <laughs> I know, I think he's he's doing a great job. He's He's, you know, definitely doing more than you would have expected at the beginning of the season. Had you said beginning of the season, Villarreal is seventh in the Spanish League and in Champions League semifinals. I mean, you'd be oddly surprised, I think. It's it's not a bad result, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Be honest now, Joel, as a Liverpool fan, how are you feeling about this semifinal against Villarreal? Are you, are you a bit worried they might cause another shock or are you thinking, come on, we're in the final here, let's do it? <laughs> I'm not walking Nathan to Paris, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little concerned, yeah. Um, absolutely, because... You know they've dumped out Juventus and Bayern Munich, like and and Jurgen Klopp said yesterday in his press conference that they've, you know, they got the one of the best, if not the best, cup com- com- competition manager in the world, which is you know some statement. But you know there's there's some gravitas to that because you know Emery is brilliant at navigating European competitions. He's you know he's done it with the Europa League and and now that's trans- transferring on to the Champions League as well. And speaking of Pierce, he's vulnerable fan. He's we've been burned by United before. Um, Famously in the Europa League final with Sevilla, um, oh yeah, 
the Alberto Moreno instance is, is, is well known in Baal. <laughs> um, and it's, it's one of them where, you know, they've got the second leg at home. Um, I mean, that, that does give Liverpool the chance to try and kill it in the first leg. And they have to go and score two or three goals, I think, in that. Because if Liverpool, you know, only win that 1-0 or if you go to the second leg with a draw, anything could happen from there. But I, I feel more confident if we go into the second leg with, with a lead. You just, you don't want to be in a situation where there's only one, one goal into it going into the last 30, 20 minutes in the second leg because... Anything could happen from there, but it'll be a lot tighter than people think. And I think at some stage over two legs, Villarreal will look like they could do something on Liverpool. Yeah, I know what's going to happen here. It's going to be City v Villarreal in the final, and I'm going to be really confident, and we're going to we're going to lose to Villarreal in the final. That's that's exactly what's going <laughs> to going to go down. <laughs> It'd be an honour to lose to them, to be fair. So yeah, good luck to them. <laughs> uh, there was more, speaking of City, there was more madness in Madrid on Wednesday where Manchester City booked their spot in the semis with a nil-nil draw against Atletico, uh, which ended with chaotic scenes on the pitch and in the tunnel. Uh, what's your stance on, on Diego Simeone's Atletico, Danny, and the, the dark arts they sometimes employ and employed in this game? <laughs> well, I mean... Simeone is a good example of how different you can interpret football or how different you can analyze a way to win a game. Um, I don't honestly think their their plan was the wrong one, namely, you know, being so defensive or so unoffensive uh, in the first leg and then kind of like mustering towards the end and the second one. Um, it's just the way they understand the game. They're really aware of where they stand on the pitch, like where whether it feels like almost like American football at sometimes. Like, you know, they kind of know we're in the 20 yard line and they go all the way down to the 60. That to them is some sort of like, uh, you know, uh, a better position to be in. Same thing with the time. They're just really good at managing time, really good at using time to their advantage. That it doesn't always work. I mean, which plan always works in football? I don't, I can think of one that is, you know, infallible. We wouldn't be talking about the sport if it were the case. Yeah. Um, but hey, I mean, it is what it is. It's the way they like to organize themselves. They just feel more like a Spartan platoon more than it does like a football team sometimes. And, uh, I don't know. It's just a very riled up team and a very intense way of understanding what it is you can do in 90 minutes to the rivals. Yeah. And I mean, if you have to kick him a little bit, uh, I think that's just fair play to them, apparently. That's it. A bit of kicking. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with people trying to gain a little advantage however they can. Gamesmanship is what we call it in English. And, you know, it's 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 fair enough. If it's within the rules, sometimes it's a little bit cheeky. Fair enough. But yeah. I don't know. I, th- I thought they were... I mean, I thought that Philippe red card was just one of the stupidest things I've ever seen on a football no, picture. Like, what, what are you doing? You fucking idiot. Like, you know, <laughs> they, they, they were, they were going for the equalizer. It was looking pretty good to get himself yeah. sent off. And then, you know, I thought Phil Foden was, was superbly clever to, to roll back onto the pitch like he did. And then oh, totally. Stefan Savage completely had a meltdown and, and it, it, it went into, I was just <laughs> laughing my head off all the way through it. It was wonderful. It was like, I, you know, it, it was better than just going there and winning the game three nil comfortably for me that I, re- I really loved it. It was, <laughs> It was just great TV, basically. And, you yeah. know, it, was, it wasn't a bad plan. Like, the plan was okay over 180 minutes when you think of it. Like, City were always going to be likelier to score than Atletico in the series, regardless where it was in Madrid or whether it was in, in, in back in Manchester. But, yeah, Felipe fucked it up, didn't he? Like, the last two minutes, you were, like, dominating for the last 20 in the game. Uh, and then you go kick the guy. And, of course, he's going to do – he's going to pull a U on you, basically. Like, he's going to roll back into the pitch. He's going to piss everybody off. And that's it. There's the game. And – no matter how much time the ref would have added up, I think that the game was lost there and then because of Felipe. Yeah, and uh, and Jack Grealish dropping the the C bomb on uh, <laughs> Stefan Savage was uh, by, by far the best thing he's done in the City shirt so far. He, Beautiful, he, mate. He was man of the match for me. He didn't even play, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think it has been a bit lost in the all the post-match discussion, Joel, that, that Simeone's tactics over the two legs were pretty outstanding and they, and they were really good in, the, in this, the second half of this game. They really put City under the caution and, and really went for it and really came close to, 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 to getting what they wanted and, and getting that equaliser and uh, you know taking it to extra time or even winning the game in normal time. Do you think that they were a bit, they were a bit unlucky overall? I'm not sure about unlucky. I, I do think they've almost played it perfectly. He's almost played it perfectly because there's no doubt they would have taken one nil at the Etihad and and shook hands on that. I've been I'm amazed with it. And then they sort of slowly built it to that in you know, the first half of the second leg. They sort of lay a few gloves on on City and without, but they didn't have a shot on target, no shot on goal. They don't really threaten Edison, um, but they sort of showed, okay, we're, we're in this and you're not going to have it all your own way. And in the second half, I thought they were brilliant. And like you said, they're really pussy under the cosh, really threatened them. And, you know, Cunha comes on and has a shot, a shot which John Stones performs an incredible block from. Yeah. Uh, that could go, I thought John Stones over it, by the way, was the best player on the pitch. Yeah. Uh, Really, really impressed by him, and then it almost worked perfectly. Even after the the chaos, where Correa has a, the chance, which Edison makes a really good save from in in the dying seconds, and and you're thinking like they're, they're only the slim margins away from taking extra extra time, and, and then they they really have played it perfectly, and then. And, and, and they deserve a bit of credit because, you know, that's a really long, drawn-out game plan and it almost pays off for them. But I think the right result was reached in the end. I think City had just done enough and I, I think they played in a in a different way that we usually expected to expect from Man City. But Atletico and Simeone do deserve credit and I think you saw that from the fans in a way they sort of uh, welcomed at the end because Simeone's clapping, even in... in um, <laughs> he's clapping the whole, all four stands, isn't he? And he's, he's really proud of what the fans gave him, and the fans are proud of the players produced on the pitch. And I think you saw more, which we haven't seen for a little while, more of the old Atleti under, under Simeone of, of really bloody the notices of the better teams. Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was like sarcastic applause at the fact that City were time wasted, or, or if he was just trying to get the crowd up for it. I think it was probably a bit of both. But do, do you think we saw a, a different side to City in, in this the second half of this game, Danny? Do you think it was a bit of a watershed moment for them because we know how good City are in possession and what a what a talented group of players it is? But this they showed a bit of metal here, which which you don't normally see from City. I think maybe in previous years we might have lost that game, but for them to dig in, I was I was really pleased with that. I think part of the discussion or the preparation for this game was, oh, so they want to give us shit, let's give them shit back kind of yeah. attitude. I think of Guardiola, it's interesting because he's always been very stuck to his concept and understanding of the game, even though it doesn't always work the way he wants it to work. Don't get me wrong, he's won everything with everybody he's coached, but um, I don't know, that little grit, that little you know, dark side of, of his city from the game against, against Atletico, it's something they can definitely work on and build on. And I think if they are able to finesse that that sort of cholo understanding of football or incorporate a certain elements of Atletico to their, to the game plan or the way they uh, manage time and manage, uh, you know, rivals expectations and, and frustration that could be very, very difficult to, to counteract, especially if it's a team that is as dominant with the ball uh, as city is. So, I mean, I think not only did they win the series and make their, and get in a, a spot in the semifinals, they also learned something I think very, very useful, which is how to rile up the bullies. And uh, I think that's a sort of like the little edge you kind of need. You need a little dirt to win a tournament sometimes, don't you? And I think they could definitely use, uh, well, the whole the whole picnic they got a dirt out of that one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on the flip side, Joel, they showed a lot of grit. Like I said, I was impressed with that. I was disappointed with with how they 
weren't very good at keeping the ball, how Atletico's press made them a bit flustered in that second half. Do you think I should be a bit worried by that? Are they uh, a City showing sort of signs of fatigue? You know, that this game coming three days after the Liverpool game, we've got Liverpool again in three days. Do you think it's gonna it's gonna catch up with City this uh, this this testing month? I mean, it could, but I I wouldn't be too worried to be honest because they, they've got through one of the most <laughs> traumatic, intensive weeks they're probably going to have in, in any mm. season. And they, and they got through it with a, with the the title still in their hands, and they're in the semi final of the Champions League. And I think that's testament to Manchester City's mentality more than anything else. Because you know, obviously, they, they want to control games and, and and play the football that they want to play every game. But sometimes you can't do that. And and when team when other teams' game plans come into it and and affect you and and stop you doing what you want to do, that's when you show you, you see the real metal of a team. And I think City have shown that. I mean, as much as I was impressed with Atletico uh, in the game, I was really impressed with Man City's defending because, you know, Atletico do have a lot of talented, creative players. And, and, and although their style of play isn't um, designed to get the best out of them, they still managed to get into areas where they could threaten. But I think City's back line were brilliant all the way through. I mean, Kyle Walker was, was incredible again. And, and, you know, without being too sort of... Um, Crude seeing him being get injured was um, quite reassuring. <laughs> on Sunday, but uh, Stones is great again. Laporte throwing his bodies on the line, and and you saw what City can do when when they're going to be under the caution, and that might happen again in at some stage in the semi final against Real Madrid. It, it might happen in the semi final against Liverpool, and it might happen if they get to the final of Champions League. And you need to show you can you can do that, and I think City have shown that they can with that. And it's not, I think. You know, they've not been brilliant, I guess, over the two legs, but they've done enough to win it and deserve to win it. Um, and, you know, I think you have to be impressed with that and, and just say, OK, we've got through this horrible, horrible week and everything's still there to play for. So it's hats off to, to Guardiola and City, to be fair to them. Yeah, if you can't play well, at least show some bollocks, I guess. <laughs> uh, last question on this one, Danny. Uh, there's been a lot of pearl clutching in the English media about the way that Atletico play. I get the sense there's been a bit of a uh, a reaction in the Spanish media as well to uh, the way that City played. Do you think both teams deserve criticism for that that brawl at the end or, or do neither team deserve criticism for? Uh, I mean, usually when you brawl, it's because it's build, it's been building up the whole game. And obviously, I think the fault lies in whoever shoots the first shot, basically. In this case, was Atletico, because we were discussing already, like the whole Felipe red card was a silly incident. Uh, Foden just reacts the way any other player would, which is like, look, the most, like, to make the most out of the situation for his team. Uh, and then Savage just doubles down and basically shoves, like, pulls the guy off the pitch. So it's kind of hard to not blame Atletico for this, even though it's part of their brand, their style, yada, yada, yada. It doesn't change the fact that it happened that way. City, in my eyes, were just basically doing what any other, any other person would do in, their, in that context, you know, which was basically standing up for themselves. Uh, could have been prevented, maybe, but in a game that, that, was, that, that was that intense, that you know, tight, and that you know, basically building towards something really, really interesting... It was either a goal or was going to be pushing and shoving. I mean, there was no middle ground here. Just shaking hands at the end of, a, of this game, nil-nil, without nothing of consequence happening on the pitch seemed very, very unlikely to me. So uh, it's just part of the show, I guess. Uh, it's, it happens in every sport. It happens definitely more often than not in other sports than in football. Um, but is it groundbreaking? It isn't. It's not the first time that it's happened. It won't be the last. It's just... Business as usual in my book, I think. Yeah, it's not exactly the uh, the malice at the palace, is it, or, or something like that? No, it no, didn't, it's... didn't quite go go that far. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't like a riot in the stands, you know. Then be concerned, you know. <laughs> I was but, worried uh... it might. I worried it might escalate <laughs> to that at one point, actually. But uh, yeah, 
Yeah, but it did. So we're all good. It was fun. It was fun. I will. I will watch that uh, again and again because I just. <laughs> I just loved it. <laughs> uh, Liverpool are also into the last four after a three-three draw with Benfica at Anfield on Wednesday. Uh, what do you think of Klopp's team selection for this one, Joel? Was it a un- unnecessary risk uh, with the with a, you know a Champions League quarterfinal on the line or like three-one up from the first leg, or or with it being three-one up from the first leg, was it a gamble worth taking? It's a gamble worth taking, and it, you know it, it has paid off because Liverpool have got through. Um, <laughs> if Benfica had won, everyone would be calling a fraud. Yeah, so that's that's the game we are in, unfortunately. Um, but no, I think he, I think he had to do it because Liverpool, like Man City, I guess, have had an intense week and the run of games like every three days, which you know isn't helping the players' legs. It's not helping my bank balance or liver. <laughs> um, and at some point, you're gonna have to try and. You know, managed to give some players a rest, and you look at every game from now until the end of the season, and this is probably the last chance. And Liverpool are very lucky and privileged to be able to, in position to do that. And you know, because of what they did in the first leg, um, if it had been two one going into the second leg, I don't think he would have done it. Yeah. But Luis Diaz's late goal on the first leg has, has managed to, to give us that privilege. And and you know, it's they, they do go three one. Okay, they end the three three, and it looks closer than it probably did. But they did go three one up, and the new job had done, and, and may, maybe sort of um, they sort of took the foot off the gas a little bit. But they managed to, to give um, an hour off to the likes of Salah, Fabinho, and and you know, n- not even give any minutes to Van Dijk, Robertson, and Trent Alexander Arnold, which was really important. And it, it it does give you know does leave Liverpool in a bit of a better position going into the FA Cup semi final the weekend than, than it does Manchester City because. Obviously, they've been bruised and battered, but whether that's going to be a benefit or not, we'll see because Rhythm's obviously an important thing as well. But I think they've done well, and Klopp is, um, you know, he doesn't like making change, that many changes, but he's done it, it's paid off, and, and Liverpool in the semi final Champions League. So happy days. Happy days indeed. Yeah, well, for you anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was annoyed about the team selection because I thought, ah, one of those players to have a. Did one of those players have a rest ahead of the game at the weekend? But yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I mean, I didn't think, I, to be honest, when the draw was made, that Benfica would give Liverpool much to worry about at all, Danny. Uh, they scored four goals over the two legs. Do you think that, that says that uh, we, were, we were wrong to underestimate them or, or were Liverpool's uh, defensively not as sound as, as they usually are? I mean, it's, it's quarterfinals Champions League. Any team that makes it this far definitely has the resources to harm whichever the rival may be, no matter the difference. But Vika are also not a small team. But having said that, in the grand scheme of things, it is a bit surprising to see Benfica score four against Liverpool, let alone three in one game. Um, but yeah, I think there was part of it was part of like this whole trend this week, wasn't it? That just like the big team or the favorite team in every leg kind of over didn't really think much of the rival in that case. It felt a bit like the Bayern reading of the game. Like, well, we can rest we can rest players for this weekend and have a big game, uh, big game coming up for the for the FA Cup. Um, it just, I don't know, it's, uh, it felt like nice and easy business as usual kind of on the Liverpool side. But having said all that, yeah, I mean, Benfica that were the boots on, didn't they? So good for them. A lot of characters yeah. shown there. Indeed, yeah. You will have uh, you will have got a good look at Darwin Nunez, Joel, over the two oh, legs. Are, are you, uh, were you sufficiently impressed with him? And, and do you think uh, all the big clubs in Europe should be taking a look at him this summer? Yeah, he's a fucking nightmare, isn't he? Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> It's almost not fair, really, because he's tall, big, strong, and he's also just rapid as well, which, you know, really shouldn't be allowed to have one of those traits. And then, <laughs> but he's, <laughs> he's almost like the cliche, completely centre forward, because he can trap the ball on his chest, and he can also just turn you and run you. And it's just like a bit, a bit like Alan Harland. What are you meant to do? How are you meant to mark the guy? Because, 
you know, do you stand off and give him space? Or are you just turning and run, and run at you? Uh, or you meant to go muscle up against him? He can, he can probably uh, do the, the physical battle as well. Um, and he's incredible. And he, he almost makes it really exciting at the end with a, a really well-taken uh, volley um, to nearly make it 4-3. But Alisson pulls off a really good save. Yeah. His technique is brilliant. He's got two goals over the uh, two legs. And, yeah, I think it's someone that a lot of teams should be looking at. And at, at the moment, you really see him sort of be linked with... That sort of, you know, well, I saw links of Arsenal and, and then Newcastle and and not necessarily the big, big top European clubs. But I think if you're looking at, you know, let's say Manchester City do end up going to get Haaland, which everyone believes is going to be the case. You know, maybe the, the bigger clubs who don't get Haaland should have a look at Darwin Nunes and, and maybe could be, you know, getting the same type of player. With, you imagine might be a, a little bit more cheaper, but I'm, I'm not too sure what his release clause is reported to be. Um but you know, he is some player, and he, I think you're going to see him get a big move at some stage, if not this summer or next summer, because yeah. he's really, really impressed. Some talk that Man United have been scouting him very closely, so uh, that might be yeah. one to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny, of the four teams left in the Champions League now, do you think Liverpool should be considered the favourites? Um, I think along City, yes. I think um, not only because they play arguably the better football, but also because they have a, a squad depth that I don't see Madrid having. Uh, I don't see Villarreal obviously having. And I don't know. It just seems like a logical top two to pick, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Joel, you, you confident? Not just yet, no. no <laughs> I'm just dreading to get into the final play Manchester City. Oh, tell me about it. I mean, I'm, I'm going grey already. Uh, I just I don't want to go even more greyer. Uh, so not not just yet. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I after the the game the other night, I, I was like, you know, adrenaline was pumping. I went to bed and I was just lying in bed for about two hours, thinking, God, we might have to play Liverpool in the Champions League final. It's going to be absolutely awful. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it at all. But we've got to get past Real Madrid first, haven't we? And that's going to be a big test. So we'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, moving on to Thursday's Champions League, uh, Euro- Europa League, sorry, action and Barcelona are out after a thrilling 3-2 defeat at the hands of Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, this, Joel, is the first major setback of, of Xavi's tenure. Uh, is it fair to say Barca were, were very poor over the two legs? I think so, but also Eintracht Frankfurt were really good, especially in the second leg. Um, I mean, Barcelona played the first leg well enough, I guess. They were essentially in control of possession and, and, and okay, 1-1's one, not ideal, but you probably take it going into the second um, but I mean, like, I mean, on Thursday night they were, they were terrible. I mean, they just left themselves so open to the counter attack, and and Eintracht uh, Frankfurt sort of just took, took advantage. And, and to be honest, going on three nil um, before the two late goals, they were it could have been five or six to be honest with yeah. you because they, they were just left so many gaps and, and were exploited. And it's it's something that they you know teams in La Liga haven't really been able to to do just yet to Barcelona um, and to be fair Barcelona haven't proved defensively to an extent in recent weeks and um, you know it was from like 14 15 games unbeaten going into last night and, um, and that's been deserved as well Barcelona have been brilliant since the turn of the year but I think you saw last night the the first sort of weakness of the way Xavi wants to play and the way Barcelona want to, want to sort of adapt their style to and and that is that they can be exploited and, and the defense is maybe a bit shaky and, and sort of can be suspect to, to pace and technique, and, that, and that's what we saw. But I think, especially the first forty-five minutes, that was about more about Frankfurt playing really well than it was about Barcelona being being dreadful, should we say? Yeah. How much of a surprise was that Eintracht performance for you, Danny? Because it's been a real mixed bag for them in the Bundesliga this season, but they were they were absolutely superb. And you know, this was another a real shock for me. This this result. 
Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it comes very much in line with what we've been talking about this whole week, basically. Like, yeah. there's a lot of shock results, really good performances from teams you don't really expect them. But the thing with Frankfurt is that they're really a well-drilled side. Uh, Glasner is not my favorite coach by a mile, but uh, he does have this one thing, which is consistency and sort of um, organizing the team around very clear, basic principles and just evolve from that. You saw that during the game, uh, and, you know, it really did help that uh, someone like Kostic, who is arguably one of the most overlooked players in the world right now, uh, he had a fantastic game. Knauf has become like a really interesting element in the, in the squad uh, since he joined on the loan during the winter from, from Dortmund. Uh, you have Kamada, Lindstrom. Like, you have a lot of names there you think that actually could be more harmful than you would expect normally. Borre also, who had this amazing goal. Uh, I think it was the second one or the third one he scored. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't expected. Maybe it was not the scripted version you would have wanted uh, as a Barca fan, obviously. But I don't know. It also speaks a bit to this sort of like naivete in the Xavi, the Xavi ball, let's call it that. That, uh, you know, that you're untouchable at Camp Nou, this whole, you know, mystique or, you know, uh, Camp Nou being this sort of like impenetrable fortress. Um, and just Frankfurt just played them as well as they could and they just outperformed them. Like, it's that simple. Like there really is no going around it. Yeah. Frankfurt were a better team. Barca were not really that motivated, that keen. Maybe it's because, I don't know, they really don't give a shit about the Europa League or whatever it is. But it was like the one game... Because put it this way, if the Champions like being dropped out of Champions League to the Europa League was already the beginning of the end of the season, this is the end of the season for Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like and you lost to Frankfurt, you didn't make it to like out of the quarterfinals of Europa League. So as a Barca fan that I'm not, but I can imagine one being very disappointed with this whole thing. You're out of Copa del Rey early. Uh you're not fighting for the title anymore or the league. And I mean, you're not even top four in, in the Europa League. So eh, I mean kudos to Frankfurt, but this is on Xavi's hands more than anything, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a disjointed season for them, hasn't it? With a lot of off-field sure, yeah. changes and 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 the managerial change, and I guess they're going to be building towards next season now. But yeah, this this felt like the first real real setback for Xavi. And you mentioned you know Camp Nou being this fortress, but it was it was essentially a neutral ground on the night, wasn't it? With thirty thousand nine track fans getting in, what has the reaction been like uh, to that in Spain? Has there been a lot of outcry about that? Well, the Barca fans are disgusted with that happening. To be honest with mm. you, um, many of them don't believe. Because there's always been, Camp Nou is like this huge uh, tourist destination in Barcelona in and of itself as a stadium. Going to a Barca game is sort of like a thing to do if you visit the city. Um, so there's this huge car, uh, culture of uh, scalping tickets and resales. So obviously, you know, 30,000 Germans fly to Barcelona. Admittedly, it's a nice destination. You have the chance to see your team beat Barca and move on to the semifinals of a tournament you've never won. It's two good reasons to visit that place, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then it happens, and then you realize, oh, shit, none of these guys want to go to the stadium. They're selling <laughs> the tickets for a little profit. Who am I to say no? Huh? And it yeah. just happened, I guess. So, of course, the club is very, you know, upheaved right now, under, trying to understand, figure out how it happened, why it happened. But it's kind of unavoidable if that's part of the culture of the club. If a lot of the card-holding members of the season ticket holders are, re- are scalping their own tickets or reselling their own tickets for profit more often than actually showing up to the stadium – it was just a matter of time that a big fan base showed up at Barcelona, knocked the door and said, hey, we need tickets. You guys have them. Let's do business. And uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of uproar, but it shouldn't be aimed to the German fans as it kind of is. It's borderline xenophobic and sometimes in some comments. But <laughs> it's more of a introspective uh, exercise in my book. Uh, this is about the culture of your club. This is about you respecting your home ground. And I mean, it must stink to see 30,000 German fans shouting in German, outperforming you in the stands as well, because it did feel like Frankfurt many times Yeah, um, had the upper hand uh, with, with fans. So 
I don't know. Like, there's a lot of, uh, of of checking that has to happen there. Will the fans that scalp tickets and sell tickets agree to certain changes to the conditions? I don't know. So I don't think it's going to be the last time we hear about Cam Noah being run over by foreign fans. I yeah. think it's just part of the deal at this point. Well, well I mean, it's uh, very impressive, though, that they, they took that many, Joel. Could you imagine any other club travelling such huge, num- huge numbers? Do you, th- do you think even Liverpool will take 30,000 fans to an away <laughs> game like that? I mean, let's see what happens to Paris to get there. <laughs> uh, I mean, just speaking from your club, Dan, you know, some clubs do have big numbers that go and support their clubs, you know what I mean? Nah, I didn't mean that, nah, I didn't mean that. Nah, hey, we were, we were on the hill at Blackburn in 99, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Everton taking 3,000 fans to Lille in a, when they had the, a rare excursion to Europe and um, they acted like that was like fucking Oasis at Nebworth, you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think you could see a fair few little Premier League clubs taking that kind of number. Mm. I mean, let's see if Liverpool, Man City, or Real Madrid get to get to the Champions League final in Paris. You'll see. You know, Paris will become red, white, or sky blue for the day. Let's say yeah. it is incredible. I, I, to be fair, maybe maybe it isn't something that's you would see elsewhere. I mean, it may be something that is sort of. Um, exclusive to, to German fan bases and it, it's been nice actually re- looking over Twitter today and, and seeing a lot of love for the German fan culture come back because um, sorry it's be sort of like, um, applauded and you know a lot of people sort of shouting out clubs like Köln as well um, for, the, for their following I remember mm. sort of being attracted to German football in the Bundesliga and, and, and German fan culture when Köln went to Arsenal in Europa League a fair few years ago um, can't quite remember the exact year now, but the same sort of thing happened where they took over the city and a lot of Arsenal fans sold their tickets to, to Köln fans and it was pretty much essentially a neutral ground then and, and you can see it, they just go crazy for it. It's, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it makes a, a lot of, a big spectacle of the game and it, it's beautiful to see. Yeah, I remember a few years ago when Eintracht played uh, Arsenal in the Europa League and they took loads of fans and, and basically yeah. took over London. So it's going to be the same in the semi-final, isn't it? Speaking of which, West Ham's Europa League dream is alive and well after a 3-0 win at Lyon booked their first European semi-final since 1976. This was an outstanding performance from them, wasn't it, Joel? Are we saying that David Moyes is unironically a football genius at this point? <laughs> Can't argue against that, can we? Yeah. Uh, maybe we should get a banner back at the Stratford end again. Uh, <laughs> it's, they were brilliant, weren't they? And, and this wasn't just West Ham... You know, scraping this guy and, and winning one nil and putting on a defensive masterclass. This was three nil by the forty eighth minutes and, and game over. And, and West Ham are in a semi final and, and it's, they keep surprising me because you know West Ham brilliant to qualify for Europa League last season and they've managed to, to manage to sort of be in the running for for the top seven, top eight in the Premier League this season, all while getting to the semi finals of the Europa League in the actual competition. And this is one they didn't strengthen in January. Um, they've had they missed Jared Bowen for injury in recent weeks. They, they keep losing defenders here and there, but they keep on surprising and they keep on playing well. And that they, they, you know, okay, they look like they are running on on you know a low tank in the Premier League. You saw that against Brentford at the weekend, but in Europe, they just they just come alive. And I don't. Think you're betting against them getting to the final now, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And I mean, with, with Leon, this is now Leon team of the past that you know are always sort of in the running for the Champions League and Europa League sort of latter stages and, and, and doing well. They're, they're in the 10th of the league again at the moment and have had a dreadful season under Peter Bosch. And um, but you know, West Ham still deserve credit, and, and David Moyes deserves a lot of credit. And you know, where are your I thought you were gonna ask me the manager of the year shouts, which you usually do when um. A manager over the pet Guardiola as well, Dan. Where's <laughs> David's award? <laughs> well, yeah, where's David's flowers? I I agree. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, well, if, he, if it wins the Europa League, he's manager of the century, isn't he, basically, with West Ham? So, yeah. <laughs> Good luck to him. Well, De- Declan Rice was saying afterwards, Danny, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, he said they were they were inspired by a, a cheeky tweet from Leon's uh, English uh, uh, Twitter account before the game, basically saying that they're, they were going to go through and, and Moussa Dembele was winking at the camera in the first leg. Do you think uh, that suggests that Leon really underestimated the Hammers? I mean, it was kind of like the perfect week for everyone that likes giving shit how much they ate shit, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Fire and Barca. Everyone like been cheeky and everything. Uh, so, you know, if this is karma, awesome stuff, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm up for it every single time, but I also find it kind of funny that now football has moved into this realm of social media where what players tweet and hidden messages and little, you have to like decode this shit, like you're a spy kind of, uh, to figure out what the motivation of teams ought to be. And I mean, if this works, it works. I remember, you know, Holland and Dortmund with like being all flushed with, uh, PSG when them being so arrogant, um, not so long ago. So there's definitely like a French connection there of them using social media to kind of, you know, boast what they still have yet to win. Um, so yeah, I mean, if this was sort of like the attitude Lyon were coming into the match with, I mean, Fox. I mean, good yeah. for West Ham then. I mean, I got the impression that I, I saw the tweet in question and um, it was, you know, it's one of these tweets that's been done by an agency, probably in America somewhere. Yeah, the, the person doing it is probably some intern who's never been anywhere near France in their entire life and doesn't really speak for the club. I think maybe we just need to think about, you know, the social media message that clubs are putting out and maybe they should should keep it a bit more in-house and, and uh, you know, not, not tweet I mean, arrogant yeah. things at all and... It seems childish and foolish. Like, what's the point? What do you yeah. win with that? An extra couple thousand likes? How's yeah. that changing? How's that changing things in the grand scheme of things? It's yeah. just I don't know. The two focus, like you say, on, on sort of like the shallow show more than the actual game. You know. Yeah. Whoever sent that tweet has probably had some uh, very difficult questions to answer at work this week anyway, so uh, our hearts go out to them. <laughs> uh, elsewhere, Rangers and RB Leipzig will meet each other in the last four of the Europa League after wins over Braga and Atalanta, Atalanta respectively. Uh, Rangers had a XG of 5.77 in that Braga tie. Uh, do you think we might say they're, they're as good as any of the teams left in the competition, Joel? I, I get the, the sense that maybe they're considered the, uh, the least favourites. I mean, that XG is probably just Scott Arfield missing two open goals. In extra time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think I think it's fair to say that they should be considered the weakest team left in there. I don't think that's a, a massive hot take to, to say that or controversial. But um, I, I I think that works. And no, I think I think they they enjoy sort of being the underdog and 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 getting teams back at Ibrox and, and really bloodying their noses and and that can that can create some noise when it wants to and and it has so far not in all the ties and I think he, he also actually how that can work against them sometimes last night when they're playing against ten men and against, with Braga and, and suddenly they're expected to um to be the team that goes through and and you know they, they do struggle and limp over the line a bit until they get to extra time and and and, and obviously deserve to get through in the end but uh, they they are they should be considered the weakest team left but. You wouldn't surprise if they managed to do a job on Leipzig at home and, and then make that second leg away um, a, a horrible game for, for the host because they, they can do it. They, they keep on surprising teams. And, and, you know, they've had a couple of good years on Steven Gerrard, obviously, you know, won the league. And Giovanni Brancos has come in and, okay, they're probably not going to win the league this season. But in Europe, you just seem to be a completely different team. And they're putting in some incredible performances every round at the moment. And it, it is really impressive. And, yeah, you could see them sort of um, replicate is it 2007, 2008 when they go yeah. to and have that lovely day out in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, ju- I'm just thinking, imagine a, a Rangers-West Ham final in Seville. 
The people of Seville just get out of there. Like, it's like a war zone. Just <laughs> evacuate the city, basically, and just it's let them fine. have it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be chaos. Uh, as for Leipzig, Danny, they overcame uh, Atalanta. That's uh, another impressive result for, for Domenico Tedesco's side. Do you think they can withstand Rangers in the semis, or, or is it going to be a case of that Ibrox second leg? They might uh, find it difficult there. I mean, yeah, the game in Glasgow is not going to be easy, that's for sure. Mm. Um, having said that, I do think that Leipzig, had they had Tedesco at the beginning of the season, uh, they would not only be performing well in Europe, they were probably giving you know Bayern a lot more trouble for the Bundesliga as well. Mm. So, I mean, I think they've been one of the best sides um, for the past months, for sure. And it kind of helps that you have players like, you know, Nkunku, Andre Silva, Angelino, Olmo, Schoboschlei. Like, it's a really, really good squad. Yeah. Look, like, look at it man by man. I think they'll have what it takes um, to, you know, be sort of maybe not even the favorite, but definitely be sort of like the logical decision or Mm. logical choice for anybody betting or gambling on this match, uh, who to pick. But, uh, but yeah, Ibrox is just complicated as a place to be. (laughs) Sure is. I don't know. I don't know. 50 on this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, over in the Conference League, it's uh, it's Leicester, Roma, Feyenoord and Marseille in the semi-finals. It's the, the Jose Mourinho v. Brendan Rodgers semi that we're all craving, isn't it, Joel? <laughs> the master against the master, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> two footballing ideals from uh, two different worlds. It's going to be incredible, isn't it? I yeah. mean, there's going to be some beautiful football played that day and um yeah, I mean, the arrogance and ego for Monitor, that's going to be in that stadium. <laughs> Two former Chelsea legends, should we say. I can't wait for it. Bury me here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Well, I mean, the Conference League, Danny, many people were, were against the idea of that, uh, you know, when it when it came into formation and people were like, why the hell do we need an extra European competition? Don't we ever know if it's just more greed from UEFA, blah, blah, blah. But it seems to have won over a lot of hearts and minds this season. Would you agree with that? Are you a fan of it at this point? I'm not crazy about it, but it definitely fills a void somehow. Um, like, you know, the final can be Rome Marseille, which is this proper UEFA Cup vintage kind of, uh, you know, football fetishist kind of match. You were like, you know, you kind of want to watch here in there. I think that what's happening now with football is that a lot of the bigger budgets are obviously are being, you know, dominant in their own leagues kind of. Uh, it's kind of become like a monopoly of, not a monopoly, but definitely you kind of have like a very set, uh, cast of clubs that make it to each of, and every single one of the two tournaments that are available. So this kind of opens up uh, an extra breathing room for those clubs that may have been crowded out because they don't have the resources, yeah. because they had a bad season, whatever. So, you know, here we're talking about Jose Mourinho and Brendan Rodgers coaching a match uh, leading to a semifinal again, albeit the conference league. It's still kind of co- kind of fun and kind of cool to see that happening. I mean, and uh, people are tuning in. That's, in the end, I think, the biggest argument you can make for this. Like, you, if people did not give a shit, they would simply not watch it. And people are paying attention to it. So is it the best tournament in the world? Maybe not. But I think that when you come down to the detail, it's having a sort of like the same evolution as uh, the Europa League had maybe a decade ago when you were saying, oh, yeah, the group phase is kind of dull. Not much is happening. I don't know half of these teams. Uh, but when it comes down to, like, you know, the last eight teams alive, last four, people start paying attention again. I think it's sort of like the learning curve we as fans are having um, with this tournament as well. It's just, you know, nice to have another cup. Nice to see uh, these teams that we were, you know, that were regulars for the Champions League not so long ago, getting a chance to actually win something uh, Europe-wise. I mean, I think it's it's all good for everybody. Yeah, that's it. Football's about glory, isn't it? It's about trying to win trophies. And I guess the more teams that have that opportunity, the better. But, you know, don't get any ideas like UEFA. Let's not have a fourth European (laughs) competition now, shall we? I I think three is enough. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and with all the uh, with all, I mean, with all the all these these new rules that are being brought in with the Champions League, and we've just seen such a, a brilliant week of European football. You just think, leave it, just leave it alone. It's it's perfect as it is, but they're going to ruin it, aren't they? They ruin everything. But yeah, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to Danny and Joel for joining me and everyone for listening. Normal programming will resume next week when we'll be talking about the Bundesliga, Serie A and La Liga on this podcast. So be sure to join us for that. Until then, take care and have a nice weekend. Yeah.